Hello, my Rebels. Today, I am announcing a big plan. It's a big campaign, and we always have big plans around here, but this one seems particularly important. We just got permission from a judge of the Federal Court of Canada to be fast-tracked to have an urgent hearing of our trial against Justin Trudeau for his illegal censorship of us, banning us from attending press conferences. So I take you through the latest in this, and I tell you about our campaign. It's going to be a big battle, I'll tell you that. Uh, by the way, we also have a trial date now, which is sort of cool. I'll give you all that details in the moments ahead. But first, let me invite you to become a premium subscriber. Go to rebelnews.com. It's eight bucks a month. It's not that bad. It's less than Netflix. Or 80 bucks if you buy for the whole year in advance. Okay, here's today's show. Tonight, a federal judge approves our request to fast-track an urgent lawsuit against Justin Trudeau's media censorship. I'll give you all the details. It's May 26, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I have big news. The Federal Court of Canada has just approved our request to fast-track an urgent lawsuit against Justin Trudeau's Privy Council office for illegally banning our reporters from asking him questions during his daily press conferences. Now, as you know, the courts are closed during the pandemic. Only genuine emergencies and urgent matters are being heard. So we had to apply for special permission for our lawsuit to be classified as urgent. Frankly, I didn't know if we had a chance, but Judge Angela Furlanetto, a special kind of judge called a prothonotary, heard our request by conference call. And there were not one, not two, but three lawyers for Trudeau's government on the other side of the lawsuit. And wouldn't you know it, the court agreed with us. Our entire lawsuit, all the steps and stages, will be done in the next seven weeks. Normally, a case like ours takes literally years to work its way through the courts. And this isn't just a quick emergency injunction. This is the full process condensed into a month and a half. Affidavits, cross-examination, it's the whole hearing process. So here's the exact wording of her order issued just yesterday. This application shall be heard on July 13, 2020, commencing at 9.30 a.m. for a duration of three hours by Zoom video. The party shall provide a joint proposal as to the steps leading up to the, the hearing of this matter by no later than May 27, 2020. So it's rolling. This is very exciting. I've asked our lawyers to request that the Zoom trial be made public because normally people can sit in the courtroom and watch. That's how it was at the federal court last October when we sued Trudeau for illegally banning us from the election debates, and we won that one. It's quite an experience sitting right there in the courtroom, but obviously that's not practical for most people even when there is no pandemic. So I think that everyone and anyone will be able to watch this hearing on the Internet, just like I will be doing. Mark that in your calendar now, seriously, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time on July 13th, three-hour trial. Now, July still sounds like an awfully long time from now, given that they're banning our reporters every single day. Even this very morning, Trudeau's personal staff 
ordered the RCMP to physically eject our journalist, Kean Bexty, from the press conference in Ottawa. See, Kean has been calling into a special phone number that journalists are invited to use to pose questions to Trudeau. A solid month, Kean has been calling in every day, and Trudeau blocks him every day. Let me read to you from my affidavit in the lawsuit that we filed last night. You can see this whole affidavit and the rest of our lawsuit at letusreport.com. I really encourage you to go there and read our lawsuit for yourself and actually go through my affidavit where I outline Trudeau's misconduct. Let me read from paragraph 24. As of May 22, 2020, PM Trudeau has conducted 58 daily briefings with phone-in questions. The Privy Council has made 217 phone-in selections. Some reporters have been chosen repeatedly, sometimes two or three days in a row, as follows. Now look at that. Some reporters have been called on 13, 15, 17 times. That is not random. I also note that five out of six uh, of Trudeau's favorite reporters just happen to be from Quebec. That's where Trudeau himself is from. In fact, four media companies have been given 60% of all the phone-in questions. And shocker, three out of those four companies are Quebec media. Look, I've got no problem with Quebec media. Quebecers are better than the rest of Canada because, you know, we're Quebecers. Yeah, we know you feel that way. Uh, and the sixth uh, reporter works in Ottawa. I'm just saying, no one from British Columbia or the West or even from Toronto is on that list. It's all Trudeau's little club. No wonder the questions are such softballs. They're his personal friends. They're not gonna ask him tough questions. Once, you know, about a month ago, they let someone from a small outlet called the Parvasi Media Group in Toronto to ask two questions. So he's from what's traditionally called the ethnic media. So they let him in to the club for one day. But take a look, here's the homepage of the Parvasi Media Group. Their website is literally a huge picture of Justin Trudeau. So yeah, their reporter was given a day pass to come and praise Trudeau. They, these are not real questions. They're bailout grant applications. Listen to this one, it made me laugh out loud. You're speaking to us every day. The Deputy Prime Minister is either having meetings or speaking to us. Dr. Tam is speaking to us virtually every day. What are you guys doing to prevent burnout? I mean, there's no way you can continue at this pace. Are you drawing up some sort of rotor? Can you imagine asking Trudeau with a straight face how he's working so hard when he's the only world leader who's staying at home during the crisis? That's what happens when 90% of Canada's media is on the take, either working for the CBC state broadcaster, which gets $1.5 billion a year from Trudeau, or working for a newspaper, which are now dividing up a $600 million bailout for them too. So not a single question by any independent reporters, not one. So Kean got on a plane and flew from Calgary to Ottawa to try and put his question in person. And Trudeau literally directed the police to physically twist his arm behind his back and frog march him off the property. Could you imagine the media party meltdown if Stephen Harper had ordered the police to physically eject a liberal journalist who hadn't done anything wrong other than try and ask a question? You know, whatever you think of Donald Trump, he lets CNN and the New York Times into his press conferences and he spars with them every day. He's not a coward about it like Trudeau is. And by the way, we're not actually suing Trudeau himself for not talking to us. As I mentioned, we're suing the Privy Council office because they're the nonpartisan civil service that operates that phone call line the journalists are told to use. If Trudeau 
is too cowardly to answer our questions after we ask them. That's fine. But for the nonpartisan independent bureaucracy of professional civil servants to discriminate against any reporter based on partisan stripe is simply illegal. It's against the law for the bureaucracy to do liberal party errands or conservative party errands. Same goes for the RCMP, by the way. So the lawsuit is on. It's a go. I think Judge Ferlinetto is right, don't you? It's urgent. Too bad not a single media party journalist thinks, to, uh, thinks the same. They don't support us, but they're not nonpartisan either. They've become advocacy journalists, every one of them. Their journalist union, called Unifor, actually has a huge super PAC. It's a campaign organization that spends their union dues campaigning for Justin Trudeau in the election. So Trudeau gives journalists a bailout. And journalists campaign for Trudeau with their money. It's just a big cycle. Are you surprised that they're fine with keeping out the handful of independent journalists out of their little club? So that's the news today. We've got an urgent lawsuit on track. I think it's big news. We successfully cleared the first hurdle. The judge agreed that our lawsuit is urgent, and she's already scheduled the three-hour trial that'll be heard by another judge. Hopefully, you'll be able to watch it from the comfort of your own home. We already have submitted some of our legal filings, actually over 800 pages worth, if you're really curious. So that includes my affidavit, which was filed last night. And it has uh, an 11-page sworn statement uh, by me, and then hundreds of pages of factual exhibits, they're called like the transcripts of all the media party questions to Trudeau. So many softball questions from his personal friends. Go to lethusreport.com if you want some light bedtime reading. So it's on. The battle is on. At least three government lawyers will be fighting against us. Last time we sued the feds, in October, they put five lawyers on the file and they billed taxpayers $131,000. We still beat them. I acknowledge that this is an uphill fight, and it's by no means certain that we'll win. But we have a secret weapon. The same two young legal eagles who beat Trudeau like a drum back in October, they're on the file for us again. Now, this is going to be a much bigger fight, and Trudeau is going to do anything he can do to win. He was humiliated when he lost the last lawsuit against us. I truly expect Trudeau will spend up to half a million dollars of your tax money fighting against us just to stop us from asking him questions. I've asked our lawyers for a rough estimate of how much it'll cost for them to fight. The work they put in so far, plus the next seven weeks of preparation, plus the trial itself, they have estimated that it will cost approximately $40,000. That's a lot of money. But if you know anything about trials, you know that's actually a pretty reasonable fee. So I'm grateful to our free speech lawyers. They're going to be outspent 10 to 1 by Trudeau's lawyers. And of course, we have to crowdfund that by ourselves. We certainly won't be getting any help from the Civil Liberties Association or any journalism club. And of course, we don't take any government money. The whole world is on Trudeau's side. He pays the other journalists. They obey him. Look, someone's got to ask real questions. Someone has to defend the public interest, to be skeptical of government power, to challenge the groupthink. Trudeau refuses to take a single question from any independent journalist. He's scared to. He doesn't know what to answer. What's worse is he's corrupted the civil service, turning them into his partisan errand boys. That's the real problem here, and that's what we're asking the federal court to stop yet again. Please visit LetUsReport.com to read all the details. And while you're there, please help me crowdfund the $40,000 I'm going to need to hold Trudeau to account. 
We live in a free country. Journalists shouldn't have to go to court to be able to attend a press conference, but it's come to that. If you can help out, whether it's $5 or $500, I'd sure appreciate it. It feels like we're doing this for everyone, not just for ourselves. This is for freedom in the press, for all media. But we're there in court alone. <laughs> Please be there with us, at least morally. Go to LetUsReport.com. Welcome back. Well, sometimes I like to look at how the virus is doing in places that are not the media capital of Canada. Here in Toronto, people are obsessed with the virus and in Montreal, too. But how about in more severely normal parts of the country that the media companies are not so dense in? And I like to look at Saskatchewan because it's one of my favorite provinces. And I just checked today. And you know how many virus there, cases there are in the capital city of Regina, about a quarter million people? Zero. As in none. Do you know how many cases are in Saskatoon, the other major city in that province, also around a quarter million people? Six. Six in the whole place. I put it to you, you have a greater chance of dying from hitting wildlife on the highway than you do from dying of the virus. So the question arises, why is the whole country on a reopening schedule that seems like it was drafted in a Oh, I don't know, a senior's home in Montreal or Toronto, a virus hotspot. Why haven't other provinces just said, we're done? Joining us now via Skype from Edmonton is our friend Lauren Gunter, who made this very point in Post Media. His article is entitled, Don't Let Quebec and Ontario Hold Back Other Provinces. Lauren, great to see you again. I'm sad for the deaths in Ontario and Quebec, but I should say even in those provinces, they're very concentrated often in seniors' homes. We saw a headline in the Toronto Star, 82% of the deaths have been in seniors' homes. Makes me very sad, but it tells me, if you're not in a seniors' home, this was really no worse than the, the flu. Yeah, it, it, the statistics are interesting. I have been pushing this now for two months. Let's look at the stats. Let's look at the stats. Let's look at the stats, because the statistics are where you find the risk factors in all of this. And, you know, early on, maybe I was a little too optimistic because people didn't know, even really smart people didn't always know where this virus was going to go. But but as you say, uh, you know, it, it's largely been confined to uh, to senior something, which is horrible. It's awful. And, you know, the, the pain that you feel when you watch people who cannot say goodbye to their grandparents or their elderly parents who have to wave through the window and the last time they're going to get to hold them or talk to them or whatever was months ago and they didn't know that was going to happen. That is just so heartbreaking to see. So please, when I say this has been confined mostly to seniors' homes, don't get the wrong impression that I think it's it's trivial as a result of that. It's certainly not. But it informs our strategy for dealing with the the infection, or at least it should. And the thing is, you, you, you know, we talk here in the introduction about Toronto and Montreal. Toronto and Montreal aren't even close mm -hmm. to the same levels of infection. Montreal has many times, four times more infection than Toronto does. I mean, Toronto is, of course, the panic capital, the... the uh, uh, hipster capital of 
the country. So we're, you know, in Toronto, they're worried about, oh, my plastic bag might choke a squirrel somewhere in Algonquin. My plastic <laughs> straw could kill a turtle. Uh, you know, my, my SUV is going to melt the ice cap. This infection is going to destroy society. You know, calm down, calm down. Look at the statistics. And when you look at the statistics, Montreal was well, was very much better than New York City. And Toronto is very much better than Montreal. So it is many times better yeah. than New York City ever was. But you don't get that out of most of the coverage. The coverage yeah. is, it's happening there. It's coming here. My God, we have to get ready for it. Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's part of the reason you will see people go to the grocery store, not just with a mask on, but with gloves as well. And they jump out of the way when you push your cart anywhere close to them and they cringe by the by the soup cans. It's, it's an overreaction. Did we know that going in? No. And do I fault public health officials for doing what they did in March? No, I don't. I wish they had done it now in hindsight. I didn't know this in January. I wish in January they'd have done some of these things much, much earlier, like shut off foreign travel from hotspots and really isolate people who were suspected of having the, the infection. I think that would have reduced the, the widespread or the outbreak a great deal in Canada. Hmm. So, yes, are there things we can do better and faster? Yes, of course there are. But I don't fault people for not knowing that even Teresa Tam and, and, and other public health officials who would have guessed this would come here like this? Right. And the thing um, is, we saw such terrible imagery coming out of China. And like the Soviet Union in Chernobyl, we didn't know. Well, is it 100 times worse? Or is it just their reaction that's 100 times worse? We, uh, so there was that added level of mystery and malice. Um, but yeah. I think we're through that now. I just saw today yeah, a yeah. statistic that showed 96% of the mortalities in Italy were accompanied by an underlying... Absolutely. As they say, yes, a comorbidity. And, it, and in fact, three quarters of them were accompanied by three or more underlying conditions. Mm -hmm. So you had people who were obese, smokers, who are diabetic and over 80. Mm -hmm. Well, OK, I, I, I still feel really, really badly. I mean, some of those pictures of Italian churches where the priests were doing mass blessings of caskets mm -hmm. because there had been so many people die in a small village within a couple of days. Mm -hmm. That's really heart-wrenching. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to diminish that in any way, but it does give you an idea of whether or not you want to shut down the entire economy mm -hmm. if nobody under 40 is getting really sick and almost no one under 70 is dying. Yeah. So that's, that's why the statistics are so important. I'll give me another statistic. In Ontario, where, of course, people are panicked again because the, the daily infection rates went up slightly. Mm -hmm. There are two reasons that I can see for that. One is Ontario was very slow to start mass testing. I, that's a big mistake. That can't happen again. Mm -hmm. But they are testing now at a much more ferocious rate. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to catch more positives mm -hmm. when you do more testing. That's number one. Number two is, of course, Ontario has opened up its economy a bit. And that might tend to lead to more infections initially. It did in South Korea, which has handled this very well. They had slightly higher, slightly elevated infection rates after they opened their economy. It did it in Germany, which has handled this very well too. So you have to sort of expect that. But then you look at that, what, what's the park in Toronto? Trinity Bellwoods, I yeah. think it was, was called, where they had lots of people on the lawn. And 
the media outlets went and took pictures from the lawn level. Yeah. And when you get down and you shoot through a crowd, it looks far more crowded mm-hmm. than it probably really was. What I looked for and could not find was a drone image yeah. from the same park, because that's when you can tell whether people are social distancing or not. Mm-hmm. But Ontario has eight, almost 80% of the people who have had COVID in Ontario are now recovered. Mm-hmm. The, the similar figure for Quebec is 30%. Mm. So the, the, the virus is still very active in Quebec, and it's not nearly as active in Ontario. Yeah. So the fact that the CBC panics or the Toronto Star panics, they still, my goodness, it's going to kill us still. Yeah. Uh, it means they're not looking at the statistics and trying to put this all in perspective. Mm-hmm. So not only are, is it unfair to BC and Alberta and New Brunswick, uh, New Brunswick, again, there's one case in New Brunswick that's unresolved. This person's still sick, but they're self-isolating at home. Mm-hmm. How much risk are you at yeah. if you go out in public in New Brunswick? Yeah. Not much. Yeah. So why shouldn't you be able to go out in New Brunswick? And, and uh, they have opened up their economy even more than any other province. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- this is the reason why I wrote a piece on the weekend that said, we can't allow the panic that's in Ontario and the real infection that still exists in Quebec mm-hmm. to hold back the rest of the country because the rest of the country, the city of Edmonton with a million people has fewer than 50 active cases. Hmm. They are all self-isolated or an institution. So if I go to the grocery store, how much risk am I at yeah. of contracting yeah. COVID-19? Yeah. Very, very little, yeah. if any at all. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, th- this is the, the, the kind of sense when the prime minister says again and again and again that he's listening to the experts, he's listening to the scientists. If he is still thinking the whole country should be locked down, then he's not listening to the experts and he's not listening to the science. He's not yeah. looking at the stats in the way he should be looking at. It. Yeah. Well, a friend of a friend of a friend. So that's what triple hearsay is friends with Justin Trudeau. And uh, and he tells me that Trudeau obsesses over social media. And just really follows it. And if, and it, since he's really locked in his own house, he rarely emerges. He's a bit of a recluse. His own family doesn't live with him. Um, I think his source on the world is either very revved up, or uh, or, subordin- uh, or submissive subordinates, or Twitter. And if you are to determine your worldview by Twitter, you would be terrified. I think. I think he needs to get out and about a bit. Uh, but let me ask you one last question, because. Uh, I mean, as you know, not a single Canadian under age 20 has died, thank God, from this. And there's 8 million Canadians in that age category. So like I say, you're more likely to be hit, you know, hit a car and die, uh, hit a moose on the highway and die than get it if you're under 20. So why are we shutting down schools? Why are we shutting down playgrounds? But it's not just that it's the over 80s, over the 90s. It is, are you institutionalized? If you're 85, 90, even 100, and at home, you're going to be fine. It's, so it's not even the age, it's are you yeah. in a senior's yeah. home? And here's Absolutely. a question I have for you about this. So, yeah. so to say this kills people over 80 or over 90, yeah, but the real variable I think you're looking at is are you in an institutional home, and even more so, one in Quebec. Well, what is it about these institutional homes, and what is it about them in Quebec? I have a theory... At this point, it's just a pure hypothesis, pure speculation. 
But I'm trying to figure this out, and I, I'm sure you are too. Let me throw it at you, and if it's, a, if it's a dumb idea, puncture this balloon. Quebec is the most left-wing province when it comes to euthanasia, right to die, do not resuscitate. And especially in some of these seniors' homes, where the patients or the grandparents, the clients, whatever you want to call them, sign, and the family sign, do not resuscitate. If things are going bad, give them palliative care and wish them Godspeed into their final journey. I wonder, I mean, we've, we've heard some reports about bad hygiene and super spreader staff going from place to place. We've heard some bad reports. But I wonder if it's because families send away their grandparents, goodbye, oh yeah, if he has a problem, I don't want to spend 50 grand in meds fixing him, uh, do not resuscitate. I wonder if that and the culture of death and the culture of euthanasia and assisted suicide is a factor in the fact that anyone who got really sick in their 80s and 90s, the nursing home just said, oh sorry, he's gone. Yeah, that, that certainly could play into it. It would be really interesting to see an, a, a formal inquiry into this. It was truly independent that, that actually did ask real experts whether or not they, uh, what they thought happened and why it happened. Why was it so much worse in Quebec? I know we were told that, you know, Quebec's spring break was so much earlier than the rest of the countries. And a lot of Quebecers went to Florida and New York and, and France, where uh, at least two of those were hotspots at at the time, as it turned out, I think that's going to play into it. I do also think that sort of secular equivalent of what you're talking about, the secular half of that coin, is that Quebecers have a profound belief in the state. And they believe that they can turn over the care of their aging relatives to the government, either directly in government homes or indirectly in government supervision of private uh, seniors facilities and and that's going that's going to be the best for them government care is the best care and uh, and, and that doesn't always turn out that they want to at home the same way it, you know it, it, there isn't the thought that we should keep grandma close by um, and I think that there is more of that in in other provinces the the survival rate too is is interesting and I, this I have no clue why this has happened but the survival rate of people who are over 80 and contract COVID in Alberta is among the highest anywhere in the Western world. Hmm. And I don't know why that is, because we have had outbreaks in homes that got out of control. Mackenzie Town, for instance, in, in uh, Calgary, uh, had a lot of deaths, in excess of four dozen deaths. Uh, but none of those uh, care homes there were 28 or 29 in Calgary that had outbreaks at one point or another. None of them now have really serious problems. Sent, many of them still have active cases, but they're not spreading it to other residents in the home. Hmm. Uh, and so I'd be interested to see afterwards, let somebody take a look at all this. Why did it happen? Mm -hmm. And certainly the culture of death is probably part of it. Uh, the faith in government's probably another part of it. Uh, and and slow reactions. It, it just seems to me like there's that one case uh, it was Huron Center is what it was called in in suburban Montreal, where the staff got frightened about COVID and abandoned the home for five days. Oh my God! Before the the owners uh, stepped in and did anything really significant, Jeez. and it required the Quebec government to take over the home in order to get any care at all. 
people had been left in soiled diapers for oh four and five days. Like, oh my with, God! With they died for, and to blame that on a virus is not even that's well, not no, factual. Exactly. And people should go to jail for that. Yeah. Oh my people God! Should, be, should should go to jail for neglect, of, you know, ne yeah. negligent care yeah. in in a case like that. Um, and I think that will smarten up people the next time the disease comes around too. And it's got something like this, either COVID-19 in the second phase or something similar to COVID-19 will come around again. Yeah. And we were ready for SARS-2. SARS was very small though, and we were ready for a small outbreak of something similar. This was a large outbreak of something yeah. similar. We simply have to follow Taiwan's lead. Yeah. Taiwan has had almost no infection. They're 38 miles across the straits of Taiwan from China, and they've had virtually no infection and eight deaths, eight, yeah. in a country of 24 million people. Yeah. And that's because when they heard something was going on in China, they said, yeah, this could be bad. Yeah. Uh, so we are going to test everybody who comes in from China. We're going to put everybody who comes from China into isolation. Mm -hmm. We're going to enforce the isolation with the technology on modern smartphones. Mm -hmm. And we are going to check them out three or four times while they're in their 14-day quarantine period, mm -hmm. make sure they haven't gone anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And as a result, that Taiwan has not closed its schools, it hasn't closed its restaurants, hasn't closed its manufacturing, hasn't shut down its banks, hasn't done any of the sort of stuff yeah. that much of the rest of the world does. Yeah. And it has the lowest infection rate of a modern industrialized country. So it can be done. Yeah. Yeah, they're just great. They learned their lesson the hard way. And they were not burdened by the disinformation of the World Health Organization. Right. And, they, and they were not burdened by political correctness. Yeah, they weren't burdened sure. by this notion that if we say something's bad in China, yeah. oh, that's racist. Yeah. You mustn't say. No, yeah. something was bad yeah. in China. Yeah. It, it could have been something bad in, in, in the United States. I mean, yeah. maybe this started in the States. Maybe you could have said something's bad in New York. We yeah. have to take action. Yeah. It's not racist to identify where the source of the problem is and yeah. to take action. Yeah. Wow. Well, listen, great to talk to you, my friend. And let me once again recommend your piece in Post Media. I'm reading the version that was published in the National Post. The headline is, don't let Quebec and Ontario hold back other provinces. And let me just read the, the subtitle they gave it, the, the deck, as it's called. There have been 12 deaths in Edmonton, 1 million residents, and nearly 2,500 in Montreal, 2.3 million residents. It makes no sense to treat those two cities the same just as it makes no sense to treat different provinces or regions the same. What a great point. Great to see you, my friend. Stay healthy. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, too. All right, there you have it. Lauren right. Gunter, senior columnist for the Edmonton Sun. Stay with us. More Ahead on the Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about what happens when the people stop listening to the elites. Sherry writes... The statistics given at the beginning of this so-called pandemic were grossly inflated, which contributed to the fear. Now that the numbers are proven to be in line with the seasonal flu, it's time to admit the need for lockdowns is over. The longer the authorities delay this, the more damage done. Oh, you're so right. I just saw today a report from Italy where it was horrific, they said. Well, 96% of the virus deaths in Italy are now attributed to an underlying cause. Now, that doesn't make it any better. Those people died. But blaming that on the virus created a panic in the West. Rex writes, wow, wow Cruella de Villa with a $95,000 pay increase in two years. Yeah, I don't know how that, I mean, these public health officers, um, many of them are medical doctors, obviously not 
Dr. Tedros Adenham of the World Health Organization. How do you get to be the head of the World Health Organization but not be a doctor? These public health doctors like Teresa Tam and Davila there, they don't see patients. That's not their job. They just are sort of politicians with an MD. So imagine getting paid $300,000 just to go on TV and say, wash your hands and don't go to the park. On my interview with Sam Goldstein about an update of our FightTheFines.com campaign, Paul writes, people need to be louder than the poutine media. <laughs> Protests are one way to, to do that. Let your MPs and MVPs know how you feel. If we leave this to the politicians and hope they do the right thing, we will soon have no rights. Count on it. I really feel that this Fight the Fines campaign has been a shining moment for what we've done here at Rebel over the last five years. And we've had some very interesting battles. And thank you for letting me tell you our LetUsReport.com battle today. Uh, I just wanted to just get that big message out there. I'm going to obviously email that video much wider than just the paywall. So forgive me for giving some of the good stuff away for free. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we take a whole monologue from behind the paywall and put it out there if we think it'll bring more people to subscribe, or in this case, we need some help to, to crowdfund the lawsuit. I think this is one of the most important things we've done, partly because the government overreach is so insane, but mainly because no one else is doing it. Where's the civil liberties groups? And you know what really grosses me out about this lawsuit we have to do with the federal court? Where's all the media freedom groups? Where's all the press freedom groups who, if Donald Trump or Stephen Harper would look even cross-eyed at a journalist, they'd say, oh my God, stop harassing the press. They literally escorted Key and Bexley off the property simply because he wasn't a liberal. And the media said, oh yeah, get, get that bum out of here. The rest of the media are in the tank. That's why we're doing this lawsuit. That's our show for today, for today everybody. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, Good night, and keep fighting for freedom.